I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophets of Rage. And this is Newsbeat. Hey, everybody. This is Manny Faces, audio editor, co-producer, and host of the award-winning Newsbeat podcast, where we expose harsh truths in the public good and highlight the voices of those out there trying to make a real difference. Now, before we get to the heart of the matter, a reminder for everyone to follow the show wherever you're listening to this, and please leave a rating and review if you can. It, it helps a lot. Okay, so happy Prime Day. <laughs> Amazon's fake holiday kicked off this week with the promise of can't-miss deals and much more. And when it started, Prime Day was billed as a celebration, Amazon's words, of people who subscribe to its Prime service, which many of you likely pay for. I know I do. The online retail behemoth's annual attempt at boosting sales comes a few weeks after the Federal Trade Commission filed a long-awaited lawsuit alleging that the company's monopoly crushes competition, hurts consumers, and effectively holds third-party sellers hostage. Again, here's the headline. Amazon is raising prices across the internet, meaning those sweet deals are more like rotten apples coated with an artificial wax so you remain none the wiser. Before we dig in more, we wanted to highlight just how much consumers are being harmed by this alleged behavior. Here's our guest for the episode, David Dayen, explaining how, in the case of Prime, you're getting raked over the coals. I mean, just recently, Amazon increased its price for Prime from $99 a year to $119, and then they did it again up to $139. Nothing different is happening in terms of the amount of money that it costs to run a shipping and logistics business. It's just a pure increase in, in their profit margin. Billions of dollars, because we know how many people are on Prime, and if you just add 20 bucks a month off of each person, that's what it's gonna get. So that's another example of how this effect of you know pricing below cost, making it seem like a good deal, kind of hooking the customer, and then very slowly and gradually raising that price over the course of, of several years. I believe Jeff Bezos at one point has said, we wanna make it so that it's irresponsible not to sign up with Prime. Like that's a direct quote from Jeff Bezos when he was CEO of Amazon. So, you know, if they've sort of ingrained that in people, yeah, what's 20 more bucks a year? What's 10 more bucks a year, right? And it keeps going and going, and, and you see this imposition of market power. Now, speaking of market power, another behemoth in the world of tech, Google, is currently on trial for running its own monopoly. This time, it's the Department of Justice's antitrust division that's brought the case, alleging that Google has dominance over mobile search. The company's long been in business with top mobile phone makers such as Apple to ensure its Google browser is the default option when people search the web. It's difficult to underscore how significant this case is. The headline to a recent Verge article sums it up. Quote, the Google trial shows that Apple's search deal is the most important contract in tech. As in the case with Amazon, we'll explain why you should care. To help us do this, we enlisted the help of one of the most knowledgeable journalists on the antitrust beat, David Dayen, the executive editor of The American Prospect, a digital and print magazine you should definitely check out. So here it is. Secrecy, Deceit, and Redactions, Inside Amazon and Google's Antitrust Wars. 
This morning, Google goes on trial. The search engine accessed by some 8.5 billion users daily, handling an estimated 99,000 queries per second, is accused of stifling competition and creating an online monopoly. In 2020, the DOJ sued Google, saying it had broken the competition law by illegally blocking competition in the online search market. First, though, let's go to Eamon Javers. He is in Washington. He has breaking news for us right now on Amazon and the FTC. Eamon, what do we know? Scott, the Federal Trade Commission filed an antitrust lawsuit against Amazon this morning, alleging that the tech company has used interlocking, quote, anti-competitive and unfair strategies to illegally maintain monopoly power. The FTC was joined in the suit by 17 state attorneys general. They say Amazon's actions allow it to stop rivals and sellers from lowering prices, degrade quality for shoppers, overcharge sellers, and stifle innova uh, innovation. FTC chair. Lena Khan, Chair Khan, we very much appreciate uh, you joining us uh, in your lawsuit. Uh, you say a single company, Amazon, has seized control over much of the online retail economy. It's 172 pages. But I'm going to ask you sort of a very, the very basic, I think, underlying question, which is what do you want? What, what is the underlying goal of this? You, you don't seek necessarily a breakup or anything else. Thanks, Andrew. Good to see you. So this lawsuit is fundamentally about protecting free and fair competition. And the U.S. antitrust laws prohibit firms from using their monopoly power to punish or preclude or prevent competition. And that's what our lawsuit lays out that Amazon has done. Um, the consequences of that are very serious for sellers who now pay one out of every two dollars to Amazon. So this is effectively a 50 percent tax that businesses pay to Amazon to reach shoppers. And that in turn inflates prices for consumers. And it inflates prices for consumers, not just on Amazon's own site, but actually across the Internet. These cases would not have happened 10 years ago or five years ago or even three years ago. Since the 1980s, the government has defined down uh, antitrust enforcement to be really concerned with consumer prices only and really not to be much concerned with them, frankly. I mean, Robert Bork, who came up with this theory of consumer welfare, really was talking about it while also saying that if two companies merged, that that was always efficient. My father is known to most people as that guy who didn't make it onto the Supreme Court. And some don't even know who he is. One high school student grumbled a few years ago on Twitter, who is Robert Bork and why is he on my government AP exam? Well, I think maybe he's uh, knows now, uh, and a lot of people do. Uh, of course, my father was much more than his uh, Supreme Court nomination. In one particular area of law, antitrust, he was everything. Uh, when my father died in 2012, Professor Barack Orbach told the Washington Post, antitrust was defined by Robert Bork. I cannot overstate his influence. We have a new crop of very aggressive antitrust enforcers, really very new right with the Biden administration, people like Lena Khan at the Federal Trade Commission and Jonathan Cantor, the head of the antitrust division of the Justice Department, and at least for a time, Tim Wu, who was uh, head of the competition office in the White House. He has now gone back to academia. It shouldn't be the, the perspective, and I think sometimes it is with Lena Khan, that everything's bad and we're going to we're not going to let anyone merge and therefore we're going to take big swings. But why have that? Why start out with with that viewpoint? 
What, what, what's bad about I'm, it? I think that they want to enforce statutes as written. And the Clayton Act says that anti-competitive mergers should be blocked. You know, and they think that they, they that the last administration got too, con got even too if, conscious. Even if consumers benefit. I, I mean, there, there, there are times when companies shouldn't be in business because they're not I think they believe the last 10 years, last 20 years, a lot of mergers happened that did not benefit consumers. Airline mergers, mergers all over the health healthcare industry, and they're looking back, a lot of hospital mergers, and like, look, prices went up, things got worse, we blew it. Those three and sort of a, a neo-Brandeisian movement behind them has really taken the idea that actually we should follow the law more as it's written than how it was interpreted by Robert Bork. And if there are violations that are attempting to create a monopoly, or that are using monopoly power in a way that harms competition, we are going to enforce that. And that is true of not just the Google case and not just the Amazon case, but a host of cases that they have brought before judges. They have attempted to block mergers. Department of Justice have released a draft update on merger guidelines. It will be used to guide its review of deals and determine their compliance with federal antitrust laws. FTC Chair Lena Khan has faced strong criticism from Republicans for the agency's sweeping antitrust agenda under her leadership. Speaking on the guidelines, she says, quote, open, competitive, resilient markets have been a bedrock of America's economic success and dynamism. Faithful and vigorous enforcement of the antitrust Antitrust laws is key to maintaining that success, end quote. Joining us now with insight, Jonathan Cantor, Assistant Attorney General of the Department of Justice Antitrust Division. You know, we've seen a great deal of success in our enforcement program. Uh, we've challenged and succeeded in court uh, in, um, in blocking the Penguin Random House Simon & Schuster merger, the American Airlines JetBlue merger. Uh, and when we look at the total number of trial victories plus abandonments, either post-litigation or prior to litigation, We've seen success in over 15 transactions. Um, that is you know, a record that I'm extremely proud of. What's unique about the Google and Amazon cases is that these are existing companies. They are not seeking to merge with another company uh, that they are saying are using their monopolies in an illegal way, violating Section 2 of the Sherman Antitrust Act. These kinds of Section 2 cases have generally not been filed. The last major Sherman Section 2 case is the Microsoft case, and that was 25 years ago. The year was 1998. Microsoft controlled more than 90% of the PC operating systems market. At the heart of the case was a new product, the Internet Explorer web browser. Prosecutors argued that Microsoft used its market power to stifle the growth of competing browsers. At the time, many computer networks relied on software from Microsoft. This gave the firm lots of power and influence. I would say generally, you see a much more aggressive posture saying that yes, large corporations that control markets are bad on a host of levels that go beyond price. They're bad for consumers, but also for workers, for innovation, for uh, the partners of these companies that are trying to sell on platforms, for example, with respect to Amazon, bad for competitors and, and just bad for society. 
Amazon wasn't breaking the law simply by being big. They were breaking the law due to their behavior. Exclusionary conduct are the key words here. Uh, we're specifically talking about anti-discounting tactics that they allege, which are basically punishing sellers who offer discounts. They say that has a ripple effect, not just on the Amazon platform, but other places these resellers may sell the product. And then the other big one here is anti-competitive tactics. It's hard to completely break it down for a very specific reason that also pops up in the Google case, which is there's a tremendous amount of secrecy over the business models of these particular companies. Uh, so much so that Amazon kind of gets the right to say whether or not certain figures obtained through business records are allowed to be seen by the public. And so if you look at the Amazon lawsuit, there are tons of redactions, virtually every number that you kind of need to determine whether or not this is a monopoly and it's abusing its power has been redacted. Uh, the FTC hopes that within the next couple of weeks, they'll be able to unredact a bunch of that. What we can talk about is, is sort of in the broad strokes. Amazon controls, according to the lawsuit and according to public figures, a good chunk of the e-commerce market. Uh, that's the relevant market that they put together. Uh, some put it at 60%, some put it at 70%. A new survey indicates just how much Amazon, the giant online retailer, has reshaped America. The new NPR Marist poll found that in America, of all the people who have ever bought anything on the internet, almost all of them, 92%, have bought something on Amazon. The upshot, and I've certainly talked to a lot of third-party sellers that sell on Amazon Marketplace, uh, you have to be there. If you want to capture eyeballs, that's where you have to be. Third-party sales are actually the majority of sales on Amazon. It is not Amazon selling its own stuff. Most of the way this works is third-party sellers who are selling a particular product sign up with Amazon because they want to get to the top of the search list and they want to be seen by all these eyeballs. They typically buy ads. They use Amazon's fulfillment services, which is their logistics, their warehouses, their shipping. They're incentivized to do that because that's the way they get into Prime, which you know enables the customers to get free shipping from that. And the amount of money that goes to these services, both advertising and the fulfillment, has gone up over the years. Amazon under pressure. State investigators from California and Washington State reportedly looking into the tech giant's business practices, particularly how the company treats third-party sellers in its online marketplace. Amazon simply has too much data on its consumers and its vendors and, and honestly needs to be broken up. Right now, as a small business, there aren't many other places you can go to reach as many eyeballs as Amazon. And the, the problem is Amazon reels you in with the idea that data will help you you as a third-party vendor. But now what's happening is Amazon is trying to create their own brand within their own store to then compete with the mom and pop shop. So I think that is where this begins to get quite dangerous for uh, small to medium-sized businesses where Amazon is using, again, their own platform to sell their own third-party branded products to compete with everyone trying to sell on the platform itself. A report recently that came out from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance shows that 
45 cents out of every dollar of third-party sales is going to Amazon in the form of these fees. Basically, Amazon, rather than trying to sell everything themselves, they're allowing these other companies to come on, these other individual sellers, to come on and, and make sales on their website, and then they take a larger and larger cut of the profits. Now, what this antitrust lawsuit, that's sort of the background. What this lawsuit says is two things. Number one, it says that there's also sort of an anti-discounting rule in here that forces prices to go up across the internet. One allegation, for example, one of the ones that I think is the most compelling to me is that allegedly Amazon takes other competitors who are offering a product at lower prices and puts them so low down in the search results that they get no business at all. That way, they can artificially, supposedly, uh, elevate or inflate prices and keep them at a kind of cartel-like uh, set price that is artificial and not based on supply and demand. And in other words, Amazon says to its sellers, you have to sell for the lowest possible price here. They used to do it explicitly. And uh, after there were antitrust concerns about that, they took that away. But the way they do it now is they crawl the web, they look at all the prices that, that sellers are selling for. And if they see another price that is lower somewhere else on the internet, they downrank that individual's product so that it essentially is not seen on Amazon anymore. This tends to keep sellers keeping their prices high elsewhere, even in places that don't take as big a cut as Amazon. By that reason, it sort of uses this consumer welfare idea, you know, back onto Amazon and says, uh, you're actually raising prices elsewhere across the internet. I think that's really the, the, the prime thing here is that Amazon, by creating this monopoly, is sustaining it by keeping prices high everywhere else on the web. These sellers are in a vulnerable position. They aren't large conglomerates. They don't have massive marketing budgets. They are at the mercy of Amazon's rules. Amazon is setting forth the playing field by which they can sustain their business. Now we're in the phase where Amazon's like, okay, now we've created this monopoly, whether through predatory pricing, pricing below cost, whatever it is, we've got it now. And now we can turn up the juice and start recouping that money that we lost in previous years. And they're doing it on the backs of these very small sellers. There has been some controversy over the fact that Lena Khan in 2017, when she wrote this very famous law review essay about Amazon said that the problem was predatory pricing. But what she really said was that in 2017, when she wrote that, that's what Amazon was doing. And eventually they'll turn it around and get to a point where they're using their power to exploit. That's what we're seeing right now, six years later. And that's what Khan's FTC is alleging. Amazon, the Whole Foods merger sending shockwaves through the entire section, the grocery section that is, and some are now questioning whether Amazon should be broken up. One acquisition is getting a lot of attention. Amazon just announced that it is buying the primary care provider One Medical. The deal is worth $3.9 billion. What's going on? It's your girl Shalene the Queen coming to you guys with a video of the day in the life of an Amazon delivery driver. 
They have 113 stops today. Um, so I'm gonna start with this one, then I go up, then down, up, down, up, down, up, down. Delivering packages for the world's largest e-commerce company is a monumental job, especially with this month's annual Prime Day sales event. I've been tired, exhausted, long days. Shaleen Williams and 115,000 other drivers are part of Amazon's solution to the most expensive part of a package's journey, getting it that last mile to customer doorsteps. One thing that you could see is uh, a severing of Amazon's business lines. So they have this marketplace and they also have fulfillment by Amazon, which is a logistics service, right? You could see those two being separated because clearly the logistics service, the way Amazon sets it up, if you don't use their logistics service, you pretty much can't sell a bunch on Amazon. It gives you that prime status. If you try to do it yourself with something that they call seller fulfilled prime, in other words, the seller does the shipping and the and and the warehousing. That costs more money. It's cost prohibitive. They have made it so that it's unavoidable that you have to use this. And that's another thing in the lawsuit. This is something that in antitrust law is known as bundling or tying. They're basically saying your access to our customers is based on whether or not you use our logistics service. If you use our logistics service, then we'll get you some customers. That is tying two things together in a way that violates antitrust law. And so one way to fix that is to sever those two companies and say there's a separate company that uh, does the logistics and the warehousing and Amazon is just the marketplace and, and they can, you know, it's like they're a landlord essentially for these online businesses and they can charge some rent, but they can't say also you have to use our shipper if you want a place in our store that's what's illegal and so that could be a way that those two things are severed if that is the case i mean amazon according to the report i've seen makes enough money on fulfillment by amazon charging third parties for shipping and logistics it makes enough on that to also fund its own logistics and shipping it makes us essentially 85 billion dollars i think in the first quarter of this year from sellers on shipping and logistics and that's what it costs to ship everything including its own products so it's essentially subsidizing its own products by the fees of these third-party sellers and that is you know what the the ftc is trying to get at in this case so you know you put those two things together that it's raising prices across the internet and that it is illegally bundling or tying these two services together. Amazon used an algorithm to test how much it could raise prices in a way that its competitors would follow. That's according to some redacted documents from the FTC's antitrust suit against Amazon. The algorithm was codenamed Project Nessie. The complaint says the algorithm raised the prices on certain items and monitored competitors to see if they raised prices to Amazon's level. If they didn't, it returned the item to its normal price point. A source telling the Wall Street Journal that Amazon made more than $1 billion in revenue through use of the algorithm. It's hard to say what Project Nessie is. We just have this very minimal description of it, and then the rest is blacked out. The, the same with the destruction of documents. We don't know, really, and, and these are not private tribunals that are adjudicating this. These are our Article Three 
public courts, which we're supposed to have access to. We're supposed to be able to, to walk into a courtroom and see the controversy on display and, and, and draw our own conclusions. And, and that's as true in the Amazon case. It's even more true in the Google case. There's been this concerted effort to block testimony from public view, to block the dissemination of court documents, even transcripts from the trial. And so if you weren't there, you have, we have no record of it as the public. You know, this differs in each case, but the idea that these are all trade secrets is, is kind of ridiculous. We can talk about that in, in the context of the Google case. But this stuff is critical for understanding whether or not there was a violation of antitrust law. I mean, that, that much is clear. These are, these are exhibits in an antitrust case. And during the Microsoft trial, one of the statements that was made is that the trial is the remedy. In other words, because Microsoft was on trial for using its market power, it would be wary of continuing to use it because of its reputational risk in part. Because, you know, during that trial, Bill Gates had to sit for a deposition and he looked kind of ridiculous. He was very evasive and that hurt Microsoft publicly and they had to sort of not be as aggressive in the marketplace as they were prior to that point. Do all of the non-Microsoft browsers that you're aware of compete with Internet Explorer? In the sense that Users select which browser they want to use, yes. Interestingly, the, the same year that the Microsoft case in 1998 was, was put together, Google became a public company. And certainly Microsoft could have said, well, you know, on our Internet Explorer browser, we have our own search and you can't use Google and Google won't work. We will we'll make it not load. They didn't do that because they were under trial for uh, using their market power in, in unacceptable ways. And Google then became a big company because of that. The way that Google and Amazon are trying to block scrutiny, you know, trying to block public documents in this case, they're trying not to fall into that trap of what happened to Microsoft. They're trying to remove the reputational risk. They're trying to block the public's understanding of what they were actually doing. And that has a role to play even outside of the legal context. I think that's the important thing to understand here. Now to the biggest antitrust case in nearly a quarter century. The Department of Justice and more than a dozen states are accusing Google of being a dominating monopoly and illegally shutting out rival search engines. Today in federal court in Washington, Google on defense. The Justice Department is accusing the company of monopolistic behavior, alleging it abused its power by paying $10 billion a year to be the default search engine on Apple's iPhones, Samsung Galaxies and beyond unfairly keeping the competition like Microsoft Bing and DuckDuckGo at bay. So the main part of the Google case concerns defaults. What that means is that when you get your iPhone and you set it up, it has Google as the search engine, you know, has a little widget on the front of your iPhone screen. 
or your Android phone screen, I'm an Android guy, that says, uh, you know, Google is the default. If you want to search for something, you're searching for Google. Same with browsers, uh, Safari, uh, Chrome, it's built into the browser. The default setting is Google. Can you change that setting? Yes. Do most people change that setting? No, <laughs> absolutely not. And Google knows that. And what the DOJ has alleged in this case is that Google pays for that privilege. It pays Apple, it pays Samsung, it pays Mozilla, which makes the Firefox browser, billions, actually tens of billions of dollars to be the default search engine within these browsers, within these devices. And they engage in revenue sharing because Google makes all its money off of the ads, mostly ads in its search, it will share revenue with those companies, Apple, Samsung, AT&T, uh, T-Mobile, Mozilla, what have you, for the privilege of having that default. And that default is incredibly powerful. It is a way in which Google has prevented competition from flourishing because these other companies simply can't get around the fact that the default setting is Google. Now, what Google says is, well, we're just the best. We're, we're, the reason that we're the default here is because we're a superior product. And if that is the case, why did they pay tens of billions of dollars to become the default in all of these uh, browsers and devices? Right now, the government is presenting its case. It's brought on a lot of Google's potential competitors including Microsoft, which makes the Bing browser, but also smaller competitors like DuckDuckGo, a company called Neva that was made with former Google employees, uh, but then went out of business. There was another uh, search engine called Branch, uh, all of which are saying, yeah, we can't compete. We, we, we have no ability to overcome the fact that Google is the default search engine on virtually everything that people use. You know, later on, we'll see, we'll see Google's rebuttal to that. Welcome back to Power Lunch. Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella today testifying in Google's antitrust trial, explaining why it's so hard to compete against Google. Nadella saying, you know, it's really bogus to argue uh, that customers can change their default setting and switch to another search engine. He said, sure, they can do that in theory, but they don't actually do that in real life. So those defaults are vitally important. And he said that Microsoft has gone after Apple to try to get that search engine default for their Bing search engine uh, for years. They've been willing to pay billions of dollars for it. They've been willing to lose money in the short term to get that position. They've never been able to outbid Google. And he said that he estimates, this is just a guess now, that Google's payments to Apple are something on the order of 10 to $15 billion a year for that search engine position. I should say that the government has also put on the stand Google executives, including its chief economist, Hal Varian, and has shown emails uh, where they say exactly that the default setting is extremely powerful and that it means a lot to the company to get that default. I think what the government is alleging is that there actually were tremendous harms to this. The biggest is from Innovation, number one, companies that want to compete on privacy. For example, DuckDuckGo doesn't track you across the internet. And so there's a harm to privacy by Google being the default setting, not letting DuckDuckGo compete on that product. And, and we know that Google tracks you across the web and wherever you go. 
there's also a harm to the actual quality of the product. Anyone who's used Google in the last several years knows that if you look at that first screen, the majority of the first screen is now ads, right? Instead of getting the most relevant thing for your search, you're getting what advertisers say is the most relevant to you based on their personal self-interest. And so there's a loss of quality from Google being such a, a monopoly. In an increasingly partisan Washington beating up on big tech, that is one issue that seems to unite Republicans and Democrats. They are huge, they have market dominance, and they behave like monopolists. I think what they do is they, they suppress speech. Um, I have witnessed it on the conservative side. I have no doubt that they suppress speech on the liberal side also. So when President Biden appointed some of the toughest antitrust regulators to hold big tech accountable, it signaled an aggressive new agenda to curb the power of companies like Google. Amazon, Microsoft, and Meta. Instead, two years in, big tech is bigger and more powerful than ever. Big tech's been leading the rallies, been the big names uh, that have allowed the markets really rally. FTC chief Lena Khan, she made her name as a Yale law student when she wrote a fiery paper on Amazon that the New York Times said reframed decades of monopoly law. It shocked the business community and it shot her to fame. Jonathan Cantor was appointed to lead the Department of Justice's Antitrust Division. He spent years in private practice going after the biggest tech companies on behalf of smaller insurgents and immediately set out to challenge a half dozen corporate mergers at the DOJ. And Tim Wu took a job within the White House. He is a legal expert and author of books like The Curse of Bigness. I think that there has been an absolute change in the way that antitrust enforcement is conducted. This change you know, started in 2021 with the ushering in of Khan and Cantor uh, under the Biden administration, but it, it may well continue through future administrations. We are already seeing a wave of these kinds of cases. I just wrote very recently about a case in the agriculture industry uh, about a company called Agristats, which creates a subscription service that disseminates all of the operations information, the, the pricing information of every company practically in a particular market, whether for chicken or for turkey or for pork. And it allows this collusion to happen on price where they can, they can raise those prices while knowing they're not going to lose market share because they know how much their competition is, is pricing these products. So that's just one example. There have been many more. Uh, there have been mergers that have been blocked. There have been other cases that have been brought. And uh, I think the proof of the success of this, in my view, is the fact that merger activity is at a 10-year low. So companies out there know if we're going to try to merge and, and monopolize markets, we're going to have some friction. We're going to have some trouble getting this past the FTC or the Justice Department's antitrust division. That creates a deterrent in and of itself. And it's, I think ultimately that's good for competition. I think this new regime has been pretty successful, especially considering that we have the same judges who for 40 years have waved through a lot of these cases. And uh, so on that score, I think that they're performing a very important function. And I think we're on a path that is fundamentally different from what we've been on since the Bork Revolution in the 1980s.
All right, there it is. Look, I'll admit, like most of you, I use Amazon all the time, and I probably still will. And that's the problem they're highlighting here. Even if you know they're screwing you, they've effectively made it so they control prices around the internet, so you're forced to buy anything and everything on the platform. Maybe something good can come from this. As for Google and other antitrust actions, it does feel like we finally have people within these agencies who are not only putting people first, but actually enforcing the laws that have been in place for decades. As we know in our Substack, which accompanies this episode, wealth concentration is getting out of control. We cite a report from Oxfam, which found that, quote, 26 trillion, 63% of all new wealth was captured by the richest 1% since 2020, while $16 trillion, 37%, went to the rest of the world put together. Incredible. So big thanks to David Dayen of the American Prospect for explaining why these cases are significant and what they mean in the broader context of antitrust. Head over to our Substack, which we'll link in the description to learn more about these issues. We've packed a lot in there for you for this episode. And also check out The American Prospect at prospect.org. And maybe, just maybe, think twice before a certain mega retailer tells you that they're offering the best prices on earth. Until next time, I'm Manny Faces for Newsbeat. Wishing peace and love to you and yours. I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophets of Rage. And this is Newsbeat. This is a Many Faces Media production. Many Faces! You sick for this one. Sick.